evening. As was alluded to in our song that we sang today and on our choir, I guess, as well, our topic tonight is Be Still and Know Your God. This is taken from Psalm chapter 46, and I'd like to turn there to start with and read verses 10 and 11 from Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. To some degree, I think that we have all felt helpless at times. We've all felt anxious at times, maybe even fearful or panicked or lost at some point in our lives. And as Christians, we can go to verses like this and draw great comfort, can we not? To know that God is with us, especially in those times of trouble, is very comforting and a, and a great source of strength in weakness, as we've been talking about this week. I want this lesson to be a reminder for us tonight to... Uh, realize and, and remember that we have that blessing of God, that we have that promise from God that if we can just be still, put our trust in Him, that He can provide such great comfort to us and that we can lean on Him, especially in times of trouble and in times of sorrow, but really also in times of joy. We always have God. We can always go to God for strength and comfort. Tonight we're going to look at two examples in the Old Testament of people that found themselves in pretty dire situations. And we're going to see how the Lord helped them out of those situations, how he provided them deliverance. Uh, the first thing we're going to look at is in Exodus chapter 14, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. And then the second thing we'll look at is uh, the account of Elijah on Mount Horeb that's found in 1 Kings chapter 19. And we'll compare and contrast those two and then also see how they can apply to us today. So first let's turn to uh, Exodus chapter 14. We're going to see how the Lord has turned the weakness, sorrow, and fear of the children of Israel into joy and into deliverance by his action. To uh, set the stage here, we're, we're actually going to start uh, with our reading in verse 10. Um, however, just to give you kind of the context of what we're looking at here and the setting of it, the children of Israel have come up out of Egypt at this point. Um, God has sent his ten plagues upon Egypt. He sent Moses asking Pharaoh to let, telling people to let the people go, telling Pharaoh to let the people go. Pharaoh has refused, of course. And God sent these ten plagues upon Egypt, and they've really laid the lands to waste. They've ruined this country through these ten plagues, have, have just brought ruin to Pharaoh and his country, and obviously we know the tenth plague, the worst plague, was the death of every firstborn in Egypt, and Pharaoh himself suffered from that. He lost his son, his firstborn son, because of that plague. And so by then, the, the children of Israel were no longer being, were, at, were no longer asking to leave, they were being asked to leave, saying, get away from, the Egyptians were saying, get out of here, get away from us, there's nothing left except for our lives, and if you stay here, we're going to lose those. So get away from us. They were sent from Egypt. And so they followed God with the pillar 
the fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day, they followed God through the wilderness. That pillar led them over to the banks of the Red Sea. And we find them camping there. Now, Pharaoh, after grieving for his son, had another change of heart, as he did before. And if we look at Exodus 14 and 7, we see that he decides to pursue the children of Israel with his 600 chariots. Verse 9 tells us that he's also pursuing with all of his horses and with his army. So Pharaoh is chasing after these people to bring them back into bondage in Egypt. That's our setting. So um, to start there, let's read verses 10 through 12. And as we do, kind of put yourself in the position of an Israelite here. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. All right, so try to imagine this scene. You're an Israelite. God has led you through the wilderness to the banks of the Red Sea. The sea lays before you. Um, very large, the Red Sea. I don't know exactly where they were on the coast, but, uh, you know, not a sea you can really go around very easily. You'd have to go a long, long way, I'm sure, from where they were. So they've got the Red Sea laying out before them. Um, maybe you're in your tent or something, I don't know. You come out in the morning, you hear some commotion. You come out and you turn around, and here comes Pharaoh and his army down behind you. And they're pursuing you. And you realize this, and you turn to see where you can go to get away. Well, what's on this side? The Red Sea. Water. On this side, Pharaoh's army's coming down. And so you start to worry. Start to fear, right? You know that uh, he's not coming down because you forgot something and he wants to give it to you before you go. Right? He's coming down here to take you back into bondage. Or to kill you. You're not sure which. But either situation is not not ideal by any means. Not real good. So they, they look around, and there's nowhere to go. So when verse 10 says that they were very afraid, take it for what it says, right? I mean, I would be very afraid in that situation, too. And I think probably most of us would, because they did. They looked around, there's no escape. There's nowhere to escape to. Um, so we read in 11 and 12, they started to do what people do when they're cornered, like that, they started to panic. And they started to look for somebody to blame. You let us out of here, Moses. There's Moses. Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Moses, couldn't you have just left us alone? You brought us out here to die. We were just fine. We were slaves, we were in bondage, but it'd be better to be there than to be over here and just die out here in the wilderness. Why did you bring us out here to die, Moses? They started trying to point fingers, trying to blame Moses. 
There's a commentary on this in the 106th Psalm. I always like it when the Bible comments on itself. It makes my job a lot easier trying to figure out some of this stuff. Uh, but in Psalm 106 and 7, it says, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. Now, when he says that, I think he's talking about the plagues. Because remember, they, while they didn't maybe experience some of those plagues, they, they witnessed them, right? They were there to see the destructive power of God in the form of those plagues. So, our fathers did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. So they witnessed all these plagues. They witnessed these wonders of God. And yet, now that we find ourselves in this situation, when we're feeling trapped, then there's not a memory of that, or at least not an understanding of it. The, the connection between, okay, God did that, and so he should be able to handle this situation. That connection has not been made by these people. Right? But God's merciful. God's going to teach him. <coughs> He's going to show him what he can do. <coughs> Moses instructs the people, even though they're throwing these blames at him at the time. Verse 13, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, coming down here, the Egyptians you see, you shall see them again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Don't be afraid, Israelites. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. God is going to fight for you. These Egyptians, you're not going to have to deal with them. God's going to deal with them. And we, we, we saw that bear out, didn't we? As we go forward in the story here. Back in verse 4 of Exodus 14, God had said, I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am God. If they hadn't already figured it out by this point, they're going to know after this. And who else is going to know? Yeah, the Israelites, especially here, but the, but the whole world, we're talking about it today, right? Yeah. Again in Psalm 106, verse 8, it continues and says, Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. So God's going to make his power known here. All right, as we continue, let's continue in uh, Exodus 14 and read 15 and 16. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. All right, so God has a plan for the children of Israel. He is literally opening a door for them to cross through the sea. And that is going to be how he's going to deliver them. Um, what was the Israelites' role in this? So, did they have to hold off the Egyptians while the seas parted so then they could go through? Did they have, did they have to fight against Egypt? Did God give them a task like that to do? What did, what did they have to do? Have faith and move forward. And that's it. Alright? God's going to take care of everything. 
pretty amazing. That verse 15 is one of those verses that kind of jumped out at me when I was preparing my thoughts this time because of what he's, what God tells the children of Israel to do. He just says, move forward. And that's a really good lesson for us, too. When we don't know what to do, but are trusting God, move forward. I think the standstill might have been stop, stop panicking, so to speak, too. But I think you're right. Okay, let's stop, and now we're going to move forward. Let's clear our minds and, and go forward. Yeah, very good. Thank you. So the rest of the chapter, we have the rest of the story. And we read, we're not going to read through this verse by verse, but we, we see how God protected the children of Israel. He said, okay, move forward. That was their job. And while they're doing their job of move forward, God takes his pillar down and he puts it between the Israelites and the Egyptians. This is even before they start crossing the sea, while they're still in their camp. And God separates the Egyptians from the Israelites with that pillar. And then God opens the path in the sea. And they have this nice dry path to walk across. There's no, there's not mud getting up on their shoes or anything. He's going across this nice path. And as they go, God is still protecting them, isn't he? When the Egyptians start to follow them into the sea, what does God do? Causes the wheels to fall off, right? Maybe been, I don't know, is that where that expression comes from? The wheels start falling off the period? That's really what happened. The wheels start falling off and maybe, you know, the weight is, I don't know, Anyway, he slowed them down, and the children of Israel got across. And then, when we read that they'd see them no more, what verse was that? Is it 11 or? No. 13, yeah. Thank you. So, you'll see these Egyptians no more. God takes care of them, doesn't he? He releases that water, and he uses it to destroy the Egyptian army. And the children of Israel no longer have to worry about these Egyptians. And that's the deliverance that God gave to them. And again, all they had to do was have faith, put their trust in God, and move forward. Very simple task for them to do. And look what God did because they had faith in Him. When I think about how this applies to me, I think about maybe maybe times when I'm backed into a corner, so to speak, maybe literally or most usually maybe mentally or uh, with some sort of problem that I don't know how to deal with. We don't know what to do or where to go next. It doesn't seem to be any way out. Fear or panic starts to set in. 
you know, that's a frightening time. But for a person with God, a person who's a Christian, who has a relationship with God, we can lean on God at that time. We can remember, okay, be still and listen to God. Trust in God, and he's going to provide me a way forward. There's great comfort in that. And a lot of times, like the children of Israel, it may be something that we never would have seen coming, right? Who, who do you think had the idea, God says, stand still, Moses tells them to stand still and watch the salvation of God. So, they were probably still afraid, and maybe, maybe there was a lot of doubt, probably still, maybe. Maybe there were some that trust, it's like, okay, we're going to trust in God. Who do you think said, okay, God's going to open up the sea and we're going to walk through? That's how he's going to deliver us. Okay, let's go, let's do it. Did anyone see that coming? Even Moses, probably, until God told him what to do. I mean, it's just unimaginable to us, the way that God did this, right? We could say, okay, well, maybe God's going to strike the Egyptians down with the bolt of lightning or something, something like that, I don't know. But no, that's not the way God did it. He opened up the sea, and it was dual purpose. One was to deliver them from Egypt, but the other was to get them across the sea to go where they were going, right? So, we need a way through. Here's God providing a way through. They wouldn't have ever imagined that he would do that. It had never been done before. And nobody would have even dreamed it up. And so, that's our lesson. God can provide. And we may not see how. We may say, I don't see any way out of this situation, God. And we just have to say, God, I trust you. And I know that you're going to provide me a way forward. And I'm going to do my best to be still and to listen so that I can see that way when you show it to me. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, that your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds, Christ Jesus. There are times in our lives when there's no reason, logically, from man's logic, there's no reason to have peace. And yet God gives us peace in those times. Anybody have any comments that you'd like to share up to this point? Yes. Right. Yeah, and it's, that's a good point. It's very possible to be physically still and maybe even physically quiet, but if your mind is racing, I mean, you're not still in that situation. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. 
Right. I'd like to talk a little more about how we can achieve that stillness of mind, too. But hopefully we'll have time. Sure. Oh. Do we know where they were on the west coast of the sea? Yeah. So I, in the best case, you know, the Red Sea has that fork at the top and it has the two little things, and then the bottom is wide. Maybe they crossed one of the forks in the Sinai Peninsula, so that would be less distance that way, and probably less deep. But but still, uh, I don't know how far across it is, but it's still a significant. Distance. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Well, uh, if you read this history on this, some people try to explain this away. I thought about the Sea of Greece, where the sea is a marshy flat area, so the water may may not have been easy for something like that. Well, that's where they went from. Well, okay. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> right. And again, why did the Egyptians not catch the Israelites in that situation? And it's like like we read in Psalm 106. I mean, it was God showing His power, showing that He is the Lord. We can't even fathom, yeah, we can't fathom how this would even work. And, but with God, it's no big deal. <laughs> okay, very good. Let's, uh, let's go to Elijah. We'll cover these two and then we'll kind of come back to them a little bit. Um, but 1 Kings chapter 19. 
the account we're looking at is in the first 18 verses of chapter 19 of 1 Kings. And as Steve mentioned last night, uh, this happens shortly after Elijah's great contest that he has uh, against the prophets of Baal. Remember that Elijah and the prophets of Baal went up on the mountain, 450 prophets of Baal, and they had this contest. They both had a sacrifice and an altar, and uh, the, the idea was that we were going to pray to our God, and he's going to send fire down to this altar, and that's going to show who the true God is. Whoever sends down the fire, that's the true God. And this contest was done in front of all the, peop the people of Israel watching, and we know the prophets of Baal went first, 450 of them jumping around, cutting themselves, shouting out to Baal, praying to Baal, doing whatever they're trying to do to get his attention to no avail, because Baal's not real. Baal's an idol. Baal's not going to respond to them. And then we see, when it comes to Elijah's turn, he brings out the 12 barrels full of water, dumps them all over his altar and his sacrifice, completely saturating it, and he prays to God, one time, God sends a fire down from heaven that was so intense that it burned up the sacrifice, it burned up the altar, the stones, the dust of the altar. It looked up all the water that was on and around the altar in the trench. Everything was completely gone. There was no doubt who was the real God and the winner of that contest. God versus no one, God wins. <laughs> and then we know Elijah... The people were chanting, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah is probably feeling pretty good at this point about all this. At least I would think so. Um, we see that that feeling doesn't seem to last very long, though, because after the prophets of Baal have been put to death, uh, King Ahab goes and tells Jezebel, his wife, what has happened here. She is very evil, very idolatrous, and hates Elijah. And she hears what he did. In First Kings chapter one, excuse me, First Kings chapter nineteen, verses one through three, they have told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, "So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time." And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So Jezebel finds out what he did, and she threatens his life. She says, I'm going to take your life, just like you took the lives of these uh, prophets of Baal. And uh, so Elijah goes from this spiritual high, maybe, from this contest, to now feeling very low here. And he's on the run for his life. He flees. He, he, he really flees. For 40 days' worth. <laughs> <laughs> For 40 days, he goes to and, and runs from Jezebel and he goes to Mount Horeb, which is a 40-day journey away, according to verse 8. Uh, he arrives at that mountain and he finds a cave and he spends the night in this cave. Okay, so this is where we find Elijah in verse 9 when God starts to question him. And I'd like to read verses 9 and 10 here. First, first Kings 19, verse 9. And there he went into a cave, and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, 
tore down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. This gives us a, a peek into Elijah's mindset at this time. His answer to God, does it not? What does this tell us about his mental state? This answer he gives. A good word. Despair, fear, anxiety, maybe a little panic like we've been talking about, right? Probably not the best feeling he's ever had. Feeling pretty low. Feel some frustration there too, maybe. Things he's done, things he said the children of Israel still, still aren't listening to. They're idolatrous. So maybe some frustration too. So he feels very alone in his service to the Lord. Have you ever felt like that? Been out in the world or out at work or somewhere and you feel like maybe you're the only one that's trying to follow what God said. And we can feel that way at times, can't we? When we're here, it's hard to feel that way. We couldn't feel that way. But there are times maybe when we're out in the world where we do feel that way. And maybe we feel like the work we're doing isn't really making that big of a difference. It's just really making a huge difference in the world, like what I'm doing here, serving the Lord. We may feel that way sometimes, but that's Satan speaking to us in our ear trying to discourage us. And I think Elijah felt very discouraged here. If we look back to verse 4, Elijah had said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. He just wants it to be over at this point. He's very low. And remember, he's between four and eight, he's been on this 40-day journey. So he's had plenty of time with his thoughts to think about the situation and to ration it out or reason it out, maybe. He's still very low. So he's not in a great place mentally here, I think. He seems like he's filled with despair, and he's up here on this mountain, very discouraged. Uh, but God loves him, and God's going to encourage him here. Verses 11 through 13. Then he said, this is God speaking, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Okay, so God shows Elijah these <coughs> wonders. And it's interesting to note that the, that the word says here that God was not in those things. We're going to talk a little more about that. But God shows Elijah, I think, his power over nature. Once again, he had done it before, but he does it once again here. The strong wind that tore into the mountains, the earthquake, and the fire. God tells him, go out and, and watch what I'm gonna, what's going to happen here. What happens to rocks when they're torn from a mountain by the wind? Fall down, right? And 
probably they're falling down toward Elijah, I would guess. I don't know that, but I would guess that there's some above him or around him at least. So I don't know how long he was outside of the cave, but I don't think it was long. You see him back in the cave in verse 13, next time we read about him, after these things have passed. He's in the cave at that point. Um, we don't know... Okay, I said that already. <laughs> okay, so the Bible makes the point of not telling us, of telling us that God was not in the wind, the earthquake, or the fire, but was the still, small voice. And I wondered... I've always kind of wondered, why does God do this? And I took my own advice when I was studying this topic, and I just sat and thought about it a while. And what I came up with, I'm interested to hear if anybody else has other ideas as well, but what I came up with was that he needed to show Elijah these things before he spoke to him again. And it was for this reason. Um, start with, you know, when God told him to go out, I've always kind of imagined Elijah standing out at the entrance to this cave, kind of watching this stuff like a show, and seeing, oh, wow, that's, that's impressive. You know, I've, I haven't really thought about the situation maybe as deeply as I should have or as I did this time. But verse 13 helped me to realize that that wasn't really what was going on. In verse 13, Elijah was not at the entrance of the cave because God told him to go to the entrance of the cave, right? I think Elijah was back in the cave. And that seems the reason. If there's rocks falling down outside, we're going to go back in here where it's safe. Then the earthquake. Then the fire. And what does Elijah do as he approaches the entrance of the cave? What did it tell us in 13 that he did? Covered his face with his coat. Does NIV say coat? Cloak. Yeah, mantle in the New King James. Yeah, he covered... Why would he cover his face following the fire? Smoke inhalation, right? So he could breathe. So Elijah didn't witness these things. He survived them. He was in the middle of all this as it was going on. We read about it here in verse 11 and 12, and we read, oh, okay, earthquake, fire, you know, just list off the things. But I think that <laughs> this must have been very frightening for him to go through. And, you know, sometimes when we go through natural disasters or things uh, that we, as Terry said, we can't control, suddenly the things we were worried about before don't seem all that important anymore. Maybe we don't even think about them. Things that we are so worked up over before, all of a sudden, a tornado hits my house, and I don't care about that so much anymore. So Elijah survived these things, and God... God uh, showed these things to him and made him experience this, I think, to teach Elijah a lesson, or at least to remind Elijah that if God wanted him to die, he'd be dead. If God wanted him to live, he was going to live. God was in control. So without saying anything before verse 13, God said to Elijah, I didn't let you die in the windstorm. I didn't let you die in the earthquake, even though you're hiding in a cave on a mountain. <laughs> Maybe not the best place to be in an earthquake, I don't know. I didn't let you die in the fire, even though you're in a cave, in an enclosed space, in the mountain. You don't need to fear Jezebel. I'm not going to let you die at her hand. I'm going to take care of you. I'm in control. Keep following me. You keep having faith in me, and you're going to be okay. So again in verse 13, the Lord asks, 
What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answers the same way. And this is one of those places where I wish we had the tone, because I wonder if his tone changed at all from the first time to the second time. We don't have any way of knowing, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was a little bit less forceful the second time. That's just my own uh, feeling and interpretation on it. But he did say the same thing again. But this time God answered him in a different way. God gave him a path forward. He said, I've showed you my power. I've showed you you can trust me. Now I'm going to give you this path forward. Get back to work. In verses 15 through 17, God gives him a checklist of things to do to get back to work. The Lord said to him, Go and return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and then, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, as Abel, uh, of Abel Mehola, I was being good there for a while, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. All whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Get back to work, Elijah. Go do these things I told you to do. And by the way, you're not alone. You're not the only one. I've got 7,000 others who are faithful to you. So go back to work. <laughs> and sometimes that's what we need. Elijah was not, was, well, Literally shaken by the earthquake, shaken, and saying, and God said, Elijah, I'm here, I'm with you, I'm going to protect you. Here's some things for you to do to occupy your mind. Get back to it. Don't lose faith in me. And that's a, that was a pretty great gift by God to give Elijah that direction when he was just utterly lost. Come. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 
back in the saddle. <laughs> very good, very good point. No, go ahead. Yeah, gave them a, a way to proceed. Yeah, and I think that that, that is God knowing us and knowing that uh, it's easier for us to deal with if we have a, a path forward, if we have a goal. He can, he could just say, stop worrying. If we just leave it at that, well, what do we replace that with? Uh, we need something as people to replace it with, and God gives them a direction, something to replace that worry with. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole point of this is uh, stillness of mind allows us to see that direction. Because if we're still in that state where Elijah was prior to God showing him his power, or if we're still in that state of the Israelites feeling trapped, it's very hard for us to hear at that time. Right? Uh, we, we really need to stop, be still, and then listen. And then we'll be able to move forward. Very good. Uh, Michael, you had a comment. And we can see the panic working on him in that way. I mean, it, it's comforting in some ways when we read this because we can see these men that God did great things through, they're just like us. You know, we're, it's easy for us to sit here in this air-conditioned building and talk about what Elijah should have done or should have known. But if we were in that situation, we would have done exactly the same thing as he did. Uh, we may not have even done as well as he did, you know. And I think we're all aware of that, but it's 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 comforting to know that God can take anyone and accomplish it with. So He can take me and do what He wants with me, as long as I'm not resisting. Right? Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Right. Yeah, and the things I'm talking about, they're not easy. It's not easy to do. It's easy to talk about and say you should do it, but it's real hard, more hard to put it in practice. And like you said, it takes a while. I didn't, did I cut you off? I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. All right, very good. Okay. A little bit of time left. We've got an optional page. We may not get to that. <laughs> Alright, so what do we learn from the children of Israel and from Elijah? What did they have in common before God intervened for them?
And that's Proverbs 12, 14, okay, Proverbs 14 and 12, and then Psalm 25. Okay, thank you. What were their options as far as if God is not going to help them? How are they going to help themselves? What were what were they going to do? And the children of Israel, yeah, they could try and fight. Or they could surrender, hope Pharaoh wouldn't kill them. At the, the, the best case scenario would be that they would be back in slavery, in bondage. For Elijah, he could basically continue doing what he was doing. Hiding in the mountains, living as a hermit, uh, on the run. Not real great options for either one of them. But, because of what God did, they were both delivered from this situation. Right? And again, what did God require of them? Faith, obedience, trust, huh? perseverance, mm -hmm. follow his instructions, basically, right? He didn't require a whole lot of them as far as outward, visible action but to follow him and follow his instructions. Alright, so how does that how does that apply to us? How does that relate to us today? What do we learn from this? Yeah. Romans Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Yeah. Yeah. We cause ourselves a lot of stress and anxiety that if we had just gone there to God in the first place, we could maybe could have avoided some of that. Yeah, but as people, we tend to try to use God as a last resort at times. Well, we, we talked about how amazing these things were that God did for Israel and Elijah. We serve the same God today that they served then. He has the same abilities today that he has then, that he had then. He may work in a little bit different ways today than he did then. But it's the same God. And he can do amazing and miraculous maybe things through us too if he so chooses right he can do anything he wants with us and through us and so we can have every confidence in him and in his ability uh, I was thinking about Steve asked us to do a song to come up with a song I was thinking about 
song you can play at that, but the one I thought about was uh, the song in the Red Book, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. See, that goes right along with what we're saying. And I was looking at the verses of that song, in verse 3 especially stood out to me. It says, What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near, leaning on the everlasting arms. Then the chorus is leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. So leaning on God, leaning on His strength. When we're feeling weak, especially, leaning on Him for strength is such a comfort and such a blessing for the Christian. Moses told the people to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord in Exodus 14 and 13. In Psalm 46 and 10, as we saw, it says, Be still and know that I am God. So let's talk with, for our remaining five minutes about how can we do that? How can we be still? How can we clear our minds so that we can hear the Lord? Um, as Calvin mentioned, it's more than just physical stillness, although sometimes that can be helpful. But we don't necessarily even need to be physically still to have a quiet mind that's ready to hear the Lord. That does help, again, but not always absolutely necessary. Unplugging. Distractions. They're all around us. I got a, I got a expensive little distraction box that I carry around with me at all times so that I can be distracted whenever I want. It's really great. And I pay a monthly fee to be distracted too. You all should get one if you don't have one. It's really convenient. But if we don't have that, are we full of distractions? Work, activities, Uh, I wrote things down because it's hard to think when you're standing up here. Hobbies, sports, TV, internet, smartphones, Facebook, reading, exercise, things that are all, they're all fine, they're all good, there's nothing wrong with them in, in and of themselves, except for the fact that if we get engrossed in those, if we spend all our time in those things, we're not spending much time with God, and that's the problem, because our mind gets distracted, right? I saw a hand, yeah, Terry. And I think that's part, that can be part of our prayers too. Is Lord help me to figure out how I can achieve stillness of mind. Help me to find times when I can do this. For me, personally, um, when the kids are asleep, when they're awake, it's pretty difficult for me to find a time to sit quietly. Unless maybe we're all outside or something like that and they're all doing their own thing, maybe then. But 
during nap time or maybe after they go to bed. A lot of times I'll go out and uh, walk or jog at night after the kids go to bed, and that can be a time when I can think about the Word of God. Uh, when I'm driving to work in my car, sometimes I'll just turn the radio off altogether and just sit and think. And I found that to be very valuable. Uh, when we're when I'm working on lessons like this, or Sunday morning or whatever, when I'm up to speak, you know, I'll write the lesson, but then if hopefully if I planned it out well, and sometimes it doesn't work that way, but if I plan my time right, I'll have a few days to just sit and think about it. And I spend as much time maybe just thinking about what I've written as I did writing it in the first place. And that helps me to get some insight into the things I've studied and maybe come at this subject with a little more uh, to offer people than I would have had had I just done the study. And that to, to allow and sit and think and ruminate and uh, roll around in my head a little bit, it, it's very beneficial. And I think that that uh, stillness of mind is the only way to achieve that. If I listen to sports radio on the way to work, which is what I do a lot of times, I'm not thinking about my lesson when I'm listening to that. So, yeah, it's, it's good to just have that quiet time. And that's one of those nice little distractions, right? There you go. My problem is if I lay down, I go to sleep. If I sit still in a target chair, I'll go to sleep. So. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, good, good. Yeah, we have a, I'm going to have to condense what I've got here, but we have a verse about that. Uh, somebody can help me out here, maybe. That might have been that Psalm 4 that Terry was alluding to. Yeah, yeah, and you, Terry, you even said it, I think, already. Psalm 4 and 4. Uh, be angry and do not sin. Meditate with your heart on your bed and be still. And then the next word there is say law. Does everybody know what that is? What does say law mean? Pause, right? It's interesting that it's there. Be still. So on your bed is a good place unless you don't go to bed on time like me and fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> right away. Oh, mm -hmm. that's a great time. <laughs> My thoughts. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think I wrote mulling. I just didn't read it, but yeah, that's a, that's a great time to do it too. Anytime you do it, some menial task that doesn't require much brain power. You can divert your brain to doing thinking about that. Make sure you stay on the <laughs> All right, very good. Well, we're out of time. Let me just skip down to the last part of this. I wanted to talk about uh, listening and about meditation as well. Um, so if you want to think about those thoughts in your still time, recognizing the 
characteristics of a good listener and embodying those allows us to hear the Word of God more effectively. We already talked about the benefits of meditating upon them as well. Um, so I encourage you to look into that and, Lord willing, go back and see when I'm on the program. Maybe I'll write another lesson about it. <laughs> you can come and hear, hear my thoughts on that. But in conclusion, let's turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 55 and 9. Two verses as we close here. Isaiah 55 and 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's just a reminder that God is in control, and God knows how to get us out of situations that we can't deal with on our own. We don't see a way out. God does. He knows that way forward, and we just have to listen to him, trust in him, and we can move forward with the Lord as our guide. And then uh, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, um, this is a trial by fire here. John's writing to the Christians that are going to suffer intense persecution. And he's writing words of encouragement to them. And I believe, I don't have the red letters and I didn't write it down. Is this Jesus speaking in verse 10? I believe it's Jesus speaking. Okay, he says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to be to throw you, some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and that you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That is our promise from God. If we move forward, he'll give us that crown of life. No matter how bad this life gets, God's going to give us that reward in the end, and it will all be worth it.